This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Economist. Hello and welcome to the first of two shows looking at the recent destruction of ancient sites by Islamic State and the response of a group called Project Mosul, volunteers using technology to turn back time and rescue something from the rubble. I'm Anne McElvoy, senior editor at The Economist. (laughs) On the 26th of February, Islamic State posted an online video. It showed the destruction of antiquities in and around the Central Museum at Mosul in northern Iraq. Over the next few months, the destruction spread to Hatra, to Nimrud, considered to be one of Iraq's greatest archaeological treasures, and to the World Heritage Site of Palmyra in Syria, known as the Pearl of the Desert. Fiametta Rocco is The Economist's books and arts editor. What ISIS is trying to do is to control what the narrative of the future will be by destroying the past. It's a form of completely taking over people's minds, people's memories, and therefore people's loyalties and affiliations. I see birds in the trees and all life is there. And also the the detail on the right. The British Museum in London holds some of the artefacts from this region in its collection. Nigel Tallis, curator for Assyrian material, showed me a relief from the 6th century BC, depicting the military exploits of King Ashurbanipal. All these scenes you can recognise in the modern world. A group of women and children being led into essentially captivity. So we're seeing events that we can see around us on the news and television and papers, refugees, migrants and deportees. And it's that connection which makes us realise we haven't changed really. And to be able to look at a a work of art that's nearly 3,000 years old and suddenly realise that, yes, I could be there as well, and I've seen scenes like that, to lose that really is irreplaceable. Islamic State has played a major role in those scenes of refugees on the news. Human rights organisations estimate it's responsible for the execution of over 10,000 men, women and children, not counting the thousands killed on the battlefields. Islamic State rhetoric calls this a holy war, motivated by religious ideology. The video of the destruction at Mosul Museum makes the same claim. The speaker tells the camera, these ruins that are behind me, they are idols and statues that people in the past used to worship instead of Allah. We were ordered by our prophet to take down idols and destroy them. When this video hit the headlines, two PhD students, Matthew Vincent and Chance Kokonauer, wondered if modern technology might be able to offer the past a future. 
hey, we could do crowdsourcing here, find the imagery from the public and actually begin to do photogrammetric reconstructions. We can take photos that have different angles, different perspectives of an object and be able to create a three-dimensional model using just photographs. We thought maybe we would see a dozen people contribute to the project and really within a, a week of launching it, it really captured the public's attention as a way that they could have a tangible response to the systematic destruction of heritage that they were witnessing in the media. It was so sad when we saw this video. These objects are part of me. One of those gripped by the promise of Project Mosul was a former curator from the Mosul Museum. When I talked to her, she asked not to be named, fearing for her safety. So her words are spoken by an actor. It's important to show people the size of this crime, to record the cultural heritage of Mosul and to save these objects for the next generation. Matthew and his colleagues at Project Mosul are doing great work. There aren't suitable words to thank them. But for some, dilemmas remain. Fiametta Rocco. One of the questions at the very heart of all the technological developments that are coming into museums is this. If it's possible to recreate a museum with all its objects in it, isn't there a danger then that people will make much less effort to preserve the physical reality of ancient objects? I think that's a conundrum that we haven't really explored nearly enough. Well, with me to explore that and other issues is Lamia El-Gailani from the Institute of Archaeology at University College in London, Nick Pelham, who writes on the Middle East for The Economist, Tom Standage, The Economist's deputy editor, and joining us down the line from Spain is Matthew Vincent, co-founder of Project Mosul. Lamia, as someone who knows the region so well, what was it like for you to hear the news of this destruction? Well, it was such a big shock that my first, unfortunately, my first reaction was, I don't want to be an Iraqi anymore. Because to see everything being destroyed, and it is our history. And for me, these objects are intimate objects, you know. It's like a loved one suddenly had died. Matthew, we heard you talking about the early days of Project Mosul. How have things progressed since then? Unfortunately, they have continued to progress. And so we've seen, of course, the occupation in Palmyra. And uh, that seems to have been one of the, the areas that was most toured in Syria before the Civil War. So there's so many photographs available and we constantly have people uploading photographs from that site. Whereas, of course, in northern Iraq, since 2003, it's really been inaccessible. And previous to 2003, we didn't really have the the common digital camera around. People didn't have smartphones that they could just snap an image wherever they wanted to. So we don't have the same quantity of, of, of images um, for northern Iraq that we do for uh, a place like Syria. Nick, we've heard Islamic State's ideological justification for their actions, uh, at least a bit of it there. Do you set any store by that? In their own eyes, they're very much justifying their existence. Uh, Abu Bakr Baghdadi, who calls himself the caliph of the Islamic State, has taken the, the name Ibrahim. He sees himself very much as a kind of as a successor to Abraham, as a successor to the first monotheist um, who is coming to 
set a new chapter in the Middle East. And so this programme of cultural erasure, I think, is very core to what he is trying to do. That doesn't mean to say that there aren't other influences as well and other motivations. Um, one of them is clearly to enter every living room around the world and to stamp the identity of Islamic State in people's minds. And in that, they've been exceptionally effective. So um, it's a deliberate negative PR strategy in a sense. It, it's shock and awe. It's, it, it's showing their reach, showing their projection of, of power, taking what they're doing in a very local area and giving it a global context. But it's also helping them to recruit as well, isn't it? Tom I mean, Standage. That's, a, you know, that's the positive side of the publicity from their point of view. They're saying, look how awesome we are. Um, come and join us. This is what we're doing. And so in, in that respect, there is a you know, very calculated sort of PR angle to this. What is the theological justification for this destruction? It's a very good question because actually if you look at the, the precedent, it, it's very hard to find any. When the Prophet Muhammad went into Mecca and cleansed Mecca, he didn't shut down the entire fertility cult. He removed some of the uh, idols but left the black stone of the Kaaba. And historically, Islam has been very tolerant, very accepting of other cultures, of other religions, um, of monuments, which is why there are just so many across the Middle East. This new interpretation is really very foreign to Islam or to the tradition of people. So, Matthew, what are the particular challenges of working with crowdsourced imagery on a project like this when what you're dealing with is not accessible? Large parts of it are gone. Well, of course, uh, the quality is low. Photogrammetry works well with photos of different types and different sorts and whatnot, but the best photographs are ones that have been calibrated um, you know, so a scientific acquisition of a monument is much more involved than, than what a tourist might do, just snapping a few photos here and there. So unfortunately, we can't ever say that these digital reproductions that we're making are actually able to replace that, which we might see in a, in a museum. What we're doing here is really a preservation of memory. It's not a recovery of the artifact per se although it gets very close. We're able to print them. We can have very um, nice duplicates, but they're no longer useful for the sort of scientific research that we could do on the original objects. Tom Standage, the economist, has decided to build a virtual Mosul museum to house the models that Project Mosul is creating. I can see how that gets very exciting when you see the potential of what you can do. But what's your response, Tom, to the point raised earlier by Fiametta Rocco, which is about the risks involved in making virtual copies. Do we risk getting blasé about that? Yes, I think there is a risk there. And I think, um, uh, on the other hand, uh, it's possible for more people to experience a, a digital replica, you know, for an object that still exists, that is. So I think the danger is that, um, I mean, there's, there's talk now of sending very, very detailed equipment to parts of the Middle East that are in danger and scanning large areas so that if anything bad happens to them, you know, we've got them backed up in digital form as it were. Now, that's not, you know, that's not really a long-term solution to this, is it? Ultimately, what we would like to see is a political settlement in the Middle East. And so sending a whole load of scanners is, is not an alternative to that. But if the alternative is that we lose all of these things, then, then clearly I'd settle for that. Lamia, I know in terms of fighting to protect physical objects, you've called in the past for military intervention. Do you think that's still the way to go? Yeah, well, I wish they they protected them. You know, Hatra, Hatra could have been protected, but they didn't do it. And I think Palmyra should have been also protected. Protected by whom? By well, their Palmyra was under the uh, the the Syrian government. I mean, if they couldn't, they should have 
sought help, international help. Well, Nick, a quick question to you, having covered the region and, and some of this terrible warfare in detail, is what resistance do you think is practical, to take up Lamia's last point? What's the political will to protect cultural heritage in the region, given what else is going on? I think Lamia is absolutely right that there are many demands coming from Iraqis. Please, you know, there may be military measures that could be taken in order to protect some of these sites. You could declare an exclusion zone, for instance, around sites. You could notify anybody who penetrates this exclusion zone by mobile phone or by warning shots. Then you could take action. The problem is that that just raises so many other moral issues. Why are you intervening to protect ruins or that are thousands of years old and not human beings in, in the here and now? Well, no, it is important, both human loss and heritage loss, because humans can't live without their own history. And that is what IS doing, is destroying your history to start a new history. Matthew, people who say to you, well, your efforts are misdirected, you should be focusing more on the humanitarian crisis. What's your response? Unfortunately, I can't digitally reconstruct human beings. Um, you know, as as a heritage professional, I'm applying what I know to the region. If we're talking about uh, putting money towards a heritage preservation scheme or you know protecting human lives, that becomes a much more difficult question. But certainly, when you're looking at something like Project Mosul, I mean, it's a volunteer effort, and people can dedicate their time to trying to preserve uh, that heritage. And as Lamia says. Um, People without their heritage are nothing. Um, preserving those those monuments is a way to both remember the people who have been lost along the way, but also be able to give back that culture to the people who are losing it, um, in a sense, to be able to connect them with their history as well as raising the global awareness to it. Tom, I wondered as a technology person whether this had made you think more about the relationship between technology and heritage. It has, and it's quite an old question, actually. Um, uh, my favourite example is after the Great Exhibition in the 1850s, uh, Prince Albert arranged with the other sort of you know, leading uh, ruling families of Europe an exchange um, of various antiquities so that they could be plaster-casted. And uh, there's still a gallery today in the V&A Museum of plaster-cast. And this was the kind of Victorian version of virtual reality. It was the idea that you could, using technology, make the great treasures of the world available equally to everyone. Um, the whole thing that's happening with VR now is very reminiscent of the early days of the web. And some of the first things that were put on the web were art galleries. They could put their pictures on the web and you could go on these virtual tours. It was a way of accessing things you couldn't previously have accessed. So it's very reminiscent of that at the moment, that the technology we have now for VR is sort of primitive but promising, just as the web was before. Um, and it does allow people, more people, to experience um, uh, you know, the, the great uh, works of art and the great treasures of the past than previously could have done. Without, without wanting to be a fly in the ointment, I mean, isn't there also uh, the risk that through this exposure you may actually be attracting greater attention to these sites and encouraging those who seek publicity through destruction of antiquities to accelerate their to, campaign? To target them. Matthew, come in on that. Uh, a risk? You know, it, it certainly seems so. When, when we look at the destruction of the Mosul Museum back in February, it seemed that uh, we had, at the same time, destruction of Hatra, potentially at Nimrud. And it's, it, speculation is, is that that actually took place afterwards, and perhaps it took place afterwards because it was talked about so extensively in the media. 
Um, I do think that we run into an issue where, you know, awareness is raised about particular sites. And I don't know that we have an answer for that. I remember when Palmyra fell into uh, Islamic State's hands, uh, this was widely reported as, oh, no, now they're going to destroy Palmyra. And the fact that everyone gave this so much coverage was clearly a signal to them that if they did do anything, it would get, you know, it would earn them lots of publicity. Yeah, no. but, but that didn't happen with what happened in Mosul because the archaeologists and even the media hardly spoke about the okay, so that Museum. tells us they were going to do it anyway. Yeah, okay, they, were, feel, you know, I mean, they were we going make to it do it. Yeah. I'm not sure. I mean, at least in, in part, Islamic State have found a way of, of, of circumventing the, the media. It's, it's not the age of bin Laden where they were dependent on Al Jazeera to get their message across. They're yeah. prolific across the social media. And their own videos are in some way a, a marketing campaign, not just for their own messaging, but also for their own uh, trade in antiquities. There have been several reports which have come out to say that antiquities have become the second source of financing for Islamic State. And After uh, oil, that is, I take it. Yes, yes after yeah, oil. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Matthew, Project Mosul has grown bigger than just Mosul now. Tell me how it's evolved. Of course, you know, the, the initial focus, as the name suggests, was just on Project Mosul. And it was shortly after the launch of the project that we had the earthquake in Nepal which made us realize that we can apply this technology to other regions of the world and other circumstances as well. It's the same sort of framework, process, tools can be used anywhere where heritage has been lost and should be recovered. And I think what's important about that is that in the West, we can and do trace the origin of Western civilization back to uh, Mesopotamia. And um, I think uh, the point about preserving the, uh, the heritage of that part of the world is uh, we can do this uh, in, in lots of other areas. The technology should be applied to everything. Um, we, we shouldn't just be focusing on the stuff we feel that sort of cultural link to. My thanks to all my guests, Lamia Al-Gayani, Matthew Vincent, Tom Standage and Nick Pelham. From me, and McElvoy, in London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.